Hi everybody, this is Ben, and this is Ben's Week in Medical School, sharing knowledge about the human body and glimpses into life in medical school. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. I do my best to present accurate information, but this podcast is not professional medical advice, and it's a personal project and does not represent the views of my medical school. So it's Sunday. We've just finished week 12, our third week of the five-week genetics course. And we got big news on Wednesday. The school announced that there were a number of COVID cases in our class. So we've switched back to completely remote learning. Um, Most everything could be done remote before, but now we're not allowed even in the building for a two-week sort of quarantine period. Um, We've had a couple of opportunities to see how well we're learning the material so far, what they call formative exams. So formative quizzes or tests, I guess. They're pretty short, and I've been doing okay on them. been getting passing scores, but not as good as I was doing last block of courses. So, you know, going to have to study pretty hard this week and next to make sure that I'm reviewing the old material and getting the new material down solidly as well. So I've got some good news. Um, the art of histology for me is improving. That's me trying to look at these microscope slides that are stained, usually pink and blue, Uh, It's a little bit cryptic. Sometimes it's difficult to have any clue what someone is pointing at when they tell you, oh, okay, now we're looking at a neuron or now we're looking at a Schwann cell or something like that. For now, we're just studying healthy cells. Later on, we're going to have to identify the same cells with some sort of a pathology associated with them. So that's going to get a lot harder, um, but it's going to get a lot more useful. One of the subjects that we talked about a lot this week Um, alongside of the science topics was research. The research ethics that we follow today were largely adopted in starting in 1947 after the Nuremberg trials. So after trying um, Nazi medical researchers for war crimes for the research that they were doing that was deemed to be unethical during World War II. But part of it is you actually have to have a definition of what is ethical research Some key parts that came out of that 1947 guideline that are still followed today um, in in large part with some modifications. First of all, the research has to be voluntary. And then it also has to likely yield some fruitful results. But third, it really should be motivated by knowledge that leads you to expect some success, so not be random. Um, And then research should also not be expected to lead to death or disability upon the part on the part of the people who are being researched. A notable exception when the experimental physicians are also the test subjects. So I guess you're allowed to do some crazy tests on yourself that you think might lead in your death or disability. And actually we've seen this happen again and again. The first person who studied radiation, studied x-rays, ended up um, dosing his hands with so many x-rays that his hand had to be amputated and eventually died from radiation poisoning, I believe. And also that subjects should be able to stop the experiment at any time. Those are a subset of all the rules, but it's pretty interesting to think about it. Before 1947, we didn't necessarily have that universal of an understanding of what good research ethics were. Something that's coming up a lot now in, in the news in COVID is all the research with vaccines. And one of the things that I find kind of interesting is this misconception that 
research is supposed to be therapeutic for the individual undergoing the research. Um, so that's the idea that undergoing the research trial is supposed to help you. And really, that's not the case. When you sign up to do a research trial, the main point is not to get you better. The point is to get information which might help other people in the future. The primary objective is not therapy. The primary objective is contributing to science. Another interesting bit of knowledge that came out of World War II is an understanding of the way mustard gas operates in the human body. They knew that it was toxic and a, a very effective anti-personnel weapon in World War I, but in World War II, there was an accidental release of a bunch of mustard gas after it was actually supposed to have already been banned from warfare. And autopsies of the individuals that died from the mustard gas revealed that the mustard gas seemed to have the biggest effect on the cells that were supposed to be growing the most rapidly in the body, things like your bone marrow. And from that, it was hypothesized that it might have some effect on cancer cells. And in fact, it does. And mustard gas has a very close cousin um, with just a few chemical bonds changed that is used as an anti-cancer therapy. And when you inject that into a tumor, it's likely that the tumor is not going to grow as fast or might start to retract certain kinds of tumors. Probably the coolest thing we learned today in genetics was how the striping of calico cats works. So calico cats have orange and black on their fur, and they're sort of in like a random tiger stripey patchy pattern, right? Well, how does this work? And why is it that almost all female, almost all calico cats are female cats? So what happens is that the coloration gene for these different colors is on the X chromosome. And female cats, just like people, usually have two X chromosomes instead of males that have an X and a Y. So calico cat females get a maternal X chromosome and a paternal X chromosome. When the sperm meets the egg, the sperm brings one of the X's and the egg brings the other. You can imagine, okay, that one of the X chromosomes, say the one that comes from the, the father, wants is going to express black fur, and the other one from the mother is going to express orange fur. You'd imagine that maybe both of these things would contribute inside of all the cells, and you would just get kind of a orangey-black colored cat, because half of the fur would be orange, or half the fur would be black, or it would be some sort of a combination of the colors mixed into every single hair. But what actually happens is you have these big patches of black and orange fur. And the reason this happens is because of what's called X inactivation. On the female cats with two X chromosomes, they might have twice as many genes getting expressed. So this could throw the cells out of balance. So what happens is in each cell, one of the X chromosomes just turns off. And this is called X inactivation. And this happens about a week into development. So at this time, the embryo is maybe, I don't know, 15, 20, 50, 100 cells, something like that. So when each of those cells turns off one of their X chromosomes, it's effectively turning off one of the colors. And from then on, all of the cells that divide from those cells on and on and on are going to continue expressing whichever color was not turned off. So you might see that a bunch of the cells on the right flank, the black gene got turned off. And so now those are going to be orange. And then next to those, the orange gene got turned off and those are going to be black. 
but one of the colors will still be expressed everywhere. So what about male calico cats? Impossible, right? Because they would no longer have two different X chromosomes, so you wouldn't get a patchwork color of the orange and black. And I think they're also white wherever there is an orange and black. But interestingly enough, though the normal male is born with an X and a Y, it's possible for a male to be born with an X and an X and a Y. In humans, this is called Klinefelter syndrome. And it happens in about one in a thousand babies. And you end up with a male appearance and generally good outcomes, um, possibly even being a, an adult fertile male with a, a life expectancy that's about the same as someone without Klinefelter syndrome. Well, the same thing happens with male cats. It can live a happy, healthy life with its cool colored fur. So interestingly, there was a bunch of research in the 1960s and 70s about what kind of outcomes people have in life that have XXY chromosomes. That's Klinefelter syndrome. One group of studies noted that people with duplications in the X chromosome and a Y were likely more likely to, to commit crimes and be incarcerated. And these studies actually had a big impact on perceptions of people with these non-standard numbers of chromosomes. What we found out is that the studies are not well-designed by today's standards. In fact, they failed to properly account for a lot of biases like um, socioeconomic status, which we know can be a huge contributor to the incarceration rate. Um, a newer data set found no significance in Denmark when socioeconomic status was controlled for. That stigma um, shouldn't have ever been there in the first place. So I have two weeks left till my exam and I'm going to keep studying at home this whole week. So I hope that goes well. I'd like to say thanks to David Funkhauser for recording the intro and outro music. As always, feel free to drop me a line if you liked the podcast or if you have some suggestions about stuff you'd like to hear. My email is b-r-o-o-t at fastmail.com. Have a great week.